we're all different. We all think differently. We all process the world differently. And if people like you and I, Lucy, can get out there and start talking about this, then we will make the future workplaces for our children a much, much safer place to be. Hello and welcome to The Growth Business, a podcast sponsored by Sapphire, home of frictionless digital systems. I'm your host, Lucy Thorpe, and this month we're talking about neurodiversity. It's a hot topic in business circles right now because so many big name companies like Microsoft and Deloitte are finally waking up to the opportunities here. For example, here's a stat for you. 80% of autistic people are not currently in any kind of paid employment. That is a shocking waste. Now, I will disclose at this point that I have close personal experience with autism and ADHD, as does my guest, Lucy Smith, founder and director of Inclusive Change at Work, where she talks about autism at work, values based leadership and diversity in the workplace. Welcome, Lucy. Hello, Lucy. It makes it easy that we've both got the same name, so we're not going to get confused here today. I will not forget your name. Now, look, (laughs) it's so brilliant to have you here. I met you on LinkedIn and this is the first time we've chatted and um, we've already um, talked a lot and I don't want to waste any more of that. So I want to get it all down on um, tape as we would have said in the brilliant. (laughs) Oh, gosh, yes. Those were the days. And it cost a lot of money to do this kind of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Real to real tape. Now, okay. so look, start by giving me a basic working definition, if you will, of what you think neurodiversity includes, because in my experience, general knowledge tends to be really quite poor. And my own knowledge was quite poor, actually, until I had to confront it when um, one of my children was 16 years old. So what's your um, what's your definition? Okay, so in terms of neurodiversity, that kind of word or phrase came about in the late 90s. um, And it was coined and and used by a lady called Judy Singer. Judy Singer is an autistic social um, scientist, and she is amazing at being able to discuss and, and describe this thing called neurodiversity. Neurodiversity itself, at its core, is a reflection of what I would call the biodiversity of the planet that we live in and as human beings as humans with an infinite number of different connections within our brains neurodiversity reflects just the same thing as biodiversity reflects within the planet and so neurodiversity basically just means we're all different we all think differently we all process the world differently we all have different ways of of reaching conclusions of lots of different things I've used the word different in there a hell of a lot of times. But we take this down another level and we start to break down different words within that, that kind of lexicon of, of neurodiversity. And you start to hear words like neurodivergence or neurodivergent. And this is where we then start to look at, OK, what's typical and, and what do the majority of the people tend to act and feel like? And if you were looking in terms of psychology or neuropsychology, A lot of psychologists will base their theories on what the majority of people will react like in a given situation. And so in neurodiversity, we have words like neurotypical to describe people who think I don't want to use the other N word, um, which is normal. Because what is normal? There is no normal. But neurotypical kind of represents the majority of people. And then we have neurodivergent individuals and neurodivergent children and adults and neurodivergent kind of takes in that concept that 
actually there are some people that don't think the same as everybody else. Now, there are labels and there are names that we can give to different conditions within that neurodivergent world, which are things like autism, ADHD, OCD, or obsessional compulsive disorder, Tourette's, dyspraxia, which is a developmental coordination delay. So dyspraxia, you can use the word clumsy around dyspraxia, but actually there's a whole plethora of differences and challenges that come with dyspraxia and it's a very underrated and under unknown um, neurodivergence and then the other big one that you'll probably hear a lot more about is dyslexia and so those are kind of the main headline conditions that come under that term of neurodivergence um, and as a as an individual now and as an organization I tend to use the word neurodivergence a lot when I'm talking about those different conditions and different different ways of thinking maybe you could chuck in the um, the maths one which uh, oh dyscalculia yes 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 dyscalculia is in there as well which um I I used to teach um and so back 25 years ago when I was teaching in further education I had a young person that came and I used to tutor them specifically on math and it used to astound me because back then I didn't know anything about neurodiversity I hadn't really started looking into it and it hadn't kind of crossed into my world and she couldn't multiply by 10 she couldn't divide by 10 she couldn't understand where decimal points went she had such a low ability low, low ability to be able to comprehend mathematical language she got specialist help to to make that happen now I know that that young person had dyscalculia but she was fabulous in so many other aspects of her world she was incredible Um, and actually reflecting upon that young person I'd actually probably say she was autistic based on what I know now and had I have known then I probably could have done a lot different for her in her in her um, educational experience so you've got loads of experience so we're going to talk in a minute a little bit more about the workplace uh, because it is a business podcast but before I kind of take you down that direction, I'd really like to know a bit more about your direct experience. So what year are we? About 2017, so almost five years ago, um, my eldest child, who was nine at the time, had started to experience worry and anxiety and came to us and said, I'm, I don't feel like everybody else. I feel like I'm an alien in the world and I don't get everything else going on. And cue then two years of worry, anxiety, very, very distressing behaviours, got to a very, very dark point, which it does in many, many families' lives where there is undiagnosed neurodivergence going on. Um, After two years, we were lucky enough, let's say, to be able to get a diagnosis for my eldest. And they were diagnosed as autistic. And so ever since then, my younger child, who's two years younger, he was diagnosed at the same age so both were diagnosed at the age of 11 um and so both of my children are autistic one is also also has selective mutism and the other also has a little sprinkling of adhd and definitely ocd although he doesn't necessarily recognize and want that um but definitely ocd so we have a very new neurodivergent family and more recently i've started to explore whether i myself may have adhd because my brain does not stop as you can probably tell by the way I talk to you. <laughs> and what some people don't realise when you first start talking about these conditions, which sounds, I don't like that yes. word, but anyway, the, these differences, people don't realise that, that they almost undoubtedly know somebody with these conditions. Because what we're talking about is incredibly bright, incredibly engaging, yeah. wonderful people. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, there's a stereotype that you're talking about somebody with a kind of 
learning disability, i.e., you know, yes. they, they can't do that. Th- they can't do things. And it's just not like that, is it? It's again, if you take that term neurodiversity and we look at it in that in that context of biodiversity, we're all different. And you can have a neurodivergent condition like dyspraxia or autism and still have a, a cognitive learning disability so there there may be somebody who who has a whole range of different things going on but absolutely I mean a ton of incredibly successful incredibly fantastic autistic adults in particular and many of them don't have a diagnosis many of them may have had a diagnosis late in life I began working for an organization as a trainer called the curly hair project and adults come to my sessions and I have had people in their 40s, 50s and 60s saying, I've just been diagnosed. I was diagnosed at 63. It's changed my life. It's made me realise why some of the things that have happened to me in my life have impacted me in such a way. Relationships, managing work, coping in the workplace, losing jobs, performance management, feeling that you've just fallen apart at sometimes because the job that you're in might not be a job that suits your neurodivergence. But you're trying so hard because you mask and you're trying to to be what everybody expects you to be. So yet there are some incredible autistic people out there. And knowledge around this subject is evolving all the time, isn't it? I mean, I remember when we were getting a diagnosis there, the the knowledge around girls in particular is only just been developing in the last few years. I mean, it's... I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. So the diagnostic criteria in terms of autism, is based on boys, based on um, two scientists back in the 1940s who did their experiments and their research on boys. And the understanding around girls was, well, no, you can't possibly be autistic. You're a girl for a start. So GPs getting through a GP surgery and asking for an an autism diagnosis or a referral to an autism uh, diagnosis Incredibly difficult because most GPs, even now, don't expect girls to be autistic. The same with ADHD. ADHD in women presents itself in a very different way than it does in boys. And so the gender gender differences in, in diagnosis for girls and boys can be very, very um, different. And it's remarkable now the number of women who are coming forward and actually saying, please, please talk to me. I'm, I'm, I think I might be. I think I might be autistic. And you kind of go, yep, let's have that chat. Absolutely. So this statistic about, well, the one about autism was 80% of autistic people are not in paid employment. Um, Yeah. That, as I was saying to you before, that terrifies me because I'm really worried about my loved ones not being able to get work. I mean, because if you can't work, you can't fulfill yourself in so many ways and you can't look after yourself and you can't support yourself. So... As somebody who works in communications in a, a tech company, I, I really want to support everything I can do to to change that statistic. And things do seem to be changing, don't they? Tell me how you yeah. see the landscape. So that's exactly why I set up my organisation, Inclusive Change, because it's exactly that. The 
outcomes for neurodivergent and specifically autistic job seekers and autistic adults are pitiful. What I am seeing is that there is a lot more awareness now, a lot more discussion. And I actually think that in terms of expectations, I really truly think that in the next five to seven years, you're going to see a generation of new job seekers and new new young people coming into the future workforce who will have higher expectations of their employers and will expect their employers to understand what does this what's what's neurodivergence why why have we not got a diverse team that involves diversity of thought and if you bring it down to to those levels and actually talk about words like diversity of thought then it kind of makes it more credible and understandable for a business to go why have we not done this before why have we not not included and started to think about our diversity and inclusion program why have we not thought about neurodivergence before and why have we not why have we not approached this i am seeing lots more awareness i am seeing recruitment programs i am seeing positive action around neurodiversity however we still have a long way to go in my profession i'm a change manager so i'm a professional change manager who can help organizations in transformational change and supporting communications and engagement and stakeholder management and all of those kinds of things and i do believe that quite a lot of organizations if they want to truly truly embrace neurodiversity we have to look at it in terms of a change management programme. Yeah, because at the moment it does feel like it's almost fashionable. And it's a bandwagon. Let's jump yeah. on it. I know. Yeah. Yay. So we need to make that mean something. I mean, the, the, the guy, Dan Harris, who I'm sure you you probably know. Yeah, I've you're about him, business. Yeah. yeah. So I've seen him out on, on LinkedIn doing amazing work with, you know, companies like Deloitte and, and this Microsoft, which got a sort of employment exchange. These are really positive things. We need to build on that and make it mean something, don't we? Yes. I do have a little bit of a counter to that, a little bit. And this is something to, to think carefully about. And actually, it came from Judy Singer, who was the lady I mentioned at the beginning, the, the social scientist, that she has started to say that she, she can see a commercialization of the industry of neurodiversity and and part of that is hang on a minute all right this isn't about making a quick buck this isn't about making a program that will make a an organization uh, successful for whatever reason this is real people and actually the movement the neurodiversity movement and anything we do needs to encompass and involve those people who are neurodivergent so it's really important that we do stuff it's really important we make change, but we don't do it to a group of people. We do it with and for and as allies, and we make that difference in that way. So that brings about the whole issue of disclosure then, uh, because you can't do something about, you can't ask for adjustments, for example, in the worst workplace unless you have disclosed, and you won't yeah. disclose unless you feel psychologically safe. So how Absolutely. do we kind of tackle that um, little knot? I think that... that that phrase that you just said about making people feel, ensuring people feel psychologically safe to disclose, that is really important. And that's an organizational cultural or an organizational culture that needs to be, needs to be nurtured, needs to be positively thought about so that we do feel yeah, it's okay for me to disclose here today. I have a team of around about 20, 25 staff. And within that team, I know about everybody's neurodivergence. I know, I know everybody, how they react to things, how and why. And without a shadow of a doubt, almost all of them that have come to work for me, when I interview them, I will ask people, what can I do 
to make your life better? What can I do to make your work or your life here at my organization better so that you work well for me? That's my way of saying, is there anything that you want me to know? All right. However, at that point, most of them, without a doubt, will say, no, it's fine. I don't need any adjustments. I don't need any changes. I can do everything. Once they start working with us, they realize that actually we have a culture where disclosure is not judgmental. Disclosure is celebrated. And actually, we have conversations in, in part of our organization. We have a retail outlet. We have a shop. We have conversations around the till with the guy delivering the milk about ADHD. And we talk about his experiences at school. He's never had anybody ask about those kind of things. But in terms of culture, there are things like stories and the way that we interact with each other that will allow people to feel comfortable and bring that psychological safety into their world so that they can go, do you know what? If I said something right now, I don't think it's going to be a bad thing. I think it's going to be okay. And they do. And then we go, yay! And we say, brilliant, what can we do to make life better for you? What can we, what can we do? You know, what, what can we put in place? And, and how, do you want, how do you want the world to change for you? It's become slightly easier in that we can be at home and we can be in a place of psychological safety with the um, sort of working from home that we've now become used to. And it's far less likely that if you are uncomfortable, you're going to be told, right, you're going to this conference tomorrow and you're representing the entire company. And I want you to walk in there and um, speak to 25 people um, and, and come back with their business cards. Because quite frankly, for me, that anybody would be possible. I would be in the lose um, hiding yeah, rather yeah. than do that. I would not want to do anybody that. Anybody would do that. But working from home, even though it is it is an environment of safety, actually it can be detrimental for some people who are neurodivergent somebody who's got ADHD finds it difficult to focus doesn't have the checks and balances and accountability that you might have in the office space for instance Um, and so even that hybrid working can cause a difference and you do need to think about well actually you know is that working for everybody how's that working for you yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. So yeah, I mean, hybrid working with the flexibility really is, it really is the way to go, isn't it? For all kinds of reasons. And that's where the conversations start, where you go, hang on a minute, let's look at this through a different lens. And if you talk to somebody who is autistic, they may very well actually say to one person who's autistic might say, I love working from home. It's my safety zone. I haven't got to cope with the sensory dis- differences. I haven't got to cope with the chatter. But however, one of the things that might happen is that I'm expected to have my Teams link on all day long. And all I keep getting is ping, 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 ping of people sending messages. And it's really distracting me. And it means I can't work. But if I turn it off, I feel like I'm breaking a rule. Those are some really specific things that might happen if, you're, if you've got hybrid working. But you might not have thought about it from that lens. You might not have seen it and, and considered it from that point of view. Similarly, another autistic person might say, no, I'd like to be in the office, please, because my house and my my home setup is not set up for working in. And actually, I'd like to have a differentiation between what I do at work and what I do at home. And so I come to work to work and I come home to be at home. It's not always the best thing for everybody. It really does take a bit of a bit of a challenge and a bit of a bit of thinking about oh, okay, where do we go with this? That's why neurodiversity is so complex. Yeah, you really do have to have um, a greater than average sense of self-knowledge, really, to set yourself Mm. up for success. Yeah, and I know from my experience, I worked at, um, I was a change manager at a university here in the Southwest. 
And one of the things we brought in was hybrid working. And I know we've kind of veered off onto this hybrid working um, thing. It wasn't actually called hybrid working. It was called agile working, which was a, a euphemism for hot desking and cost saving because we can't, we can't afford to have these properties and have lots of desks available for everybody. And you don't all have to come into the office. But thinking it from a neurodivergent perspective, there's certainly a lot to consider. And, and one of the teams that I used to, to work closely with was the IT team. So in, in the IT department, there were a fair few people that found change difficult, didn't feel comfortable in different environments. Noise was, was clearly a factor with them. And having to move desks every day or be in different places um, and not knowing that a desk would be available in that, that office space on a given day was very anxiety programmed provoking for them so it can bring a whole range of different things to think about so look our time has run away from us um we've sorry talking no not at all it's been fantastic <laughs> you want to just wrap up um whether if you if you could sort of just pull the threads together with maybe some advice for employees and employers in in, in a very um short order if I, if i might i think that the first thing you need to do as an organization is raise awareness start raising awareness start understanding this whole world of neurodiversity and start delving into it the next stage then is to take action and do something to make a difference action might be things like setting up a neurodiversity network within your organization it might be things like ensuring that you've got a neurodiversity policy within your organization and then things like looking at other policies to ensure that they are neurodiverse divergent compliant or, or that they're friendly in that way and then a third thing I would talk about in terms of organizations is about change and looking at how far and how much you want to make a difference and implementing a change program around neurodiversity so the first one is around awareness second one is around uh, taking action and third let's embed this through a change program those are the three things I'd say for organizations for individuals oh I could say a lot of things for individuals what I would like to say and something you picked up on the world is changing okay the world of work is changing more and more organizations are becoming knowledgeable and aware and if people like you and I Lucy can get out there and start talking about this then we will make the future workplaces for our children a much, much safer place to be and a much more, I can't think of the word now, but, but somewhere that will embrace the absolute fantasticness of neurodiversity and our neuro, neurodivergent children. So that's, I think, where I need to end in a bit of a clumsy way. Oh no, we do want, we want to enrich our world with, with all these wonderful, wonderful people and not have 80% of people sitting at home, um, you know, not being able to get employment because that's the thing that I really is the thing that I want to change. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you too. You've been a wonderful guest. That's it for the growth business this time. Join me for more informative business chat in the next episode. But for now, goodbye.